My name is Reese. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. And it's a real privilege to be here this morning and teach from the Bible. Uh, as Jeff had said, we have been going through a series through Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah. And we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks here uh, from that to focus on what's coming up here, Christmas, in just a very short period of time. Uh, today we're going to look at Luke 22, perhaps not a a standard Christmas uh, story, but this week we're going to look at why did Jesus come as a baby in the first place. This is sort of the end of his life, where this is all going, the intent of why he came in the first place, and then next week we'll look more at the beginning of his life when he came as a baby. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke 22, uh, my prayer this morning is that you will see Jesus more clearly than you have before, and no matter what your familiarity is with him, that you will understand his love for you more thoroughly and deeply than you have before. That is my hope and my prayer this morning. Luke 22, the, uh, the context here, you may be familiar with it. This is what a lot of people call the Last Supper. This is Jesus celebrating the Passover meal, and the Passover had been celebrated for thousands of years. This was the celebration of God's people being uh, led out of slavery as God miraculously rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. God's love for his people being celebrated in this moment of Passover. And Jesus, as he's celebrating this meal, if you're familiar with it, there's bread and there's wine, and he's telling his disciples, this is about me. So he's bringing it all together. This is about him. This, this moment is about him. Before we get to verse 31, which I'm actually going to start in, right before that, the disciples have a dispute over who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus tells them, you who have followed me will get a kingdom. There's great reward in following me. And the point I want you to have in mind as we begin this section is that the disciples don't really get who Jesus is. They're missing the point that he's telling them, but they're not getting who he is or why he came. So if you would with me, start in verse 31. It may not be up on the screen because I'm throwing a curveball to the AV guys. But that's okay. You can use your Bibles. Verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, he's talking to Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, 
It is enough. And he came out and went as it was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. If you look at your outline, we're going to cover this section in three points. Necessary weapons for the new mission, the agony in obedience, and swords for the prophecy. Let's start in the first section and make some observations. Uh, I started in 31, just to give you some context, that Jesus was talking to Peter about his upcoming failure and uh, fall into temptation, even though he denies it at the moment. And then he switches gears and talks to all of the disciples in verse 35. And he brings up an event that had happened to them that's recorded in Luke 10. It was, it was a mission that he had previously sent them on. And he asked them, when you went on that mission and those things, did you lack anything? And their answer there in 35 is nothing. Verse 36, he says, but now he's starting to give indication of a new mission and with new instructions. And he says, take a money bag. Whereas before, he said not to take one. And he says, if you don't have a sword already in your possession, then even sell your cloak to go get one. And that may be a little bit confusing. Jesus follows that up by saying, a scripture is going to be fulfilled in himself. And what he's referencing there, he's referencing Isaiah 53. Now, if you're not familiar, we've been going through Isaiah. Isaiah was written maybe 700 years before Jesus' time. So what Jesus is saying here is that when these things happen, this new mission I'm talking about is bringing fulfillment, it bringing to pass this prophecy that was written about me 700 years before. So this is a big deal. The disciples respond in verse 38. They say, look, Lord, here are two swords. Now, I'm not exactly sure how they said that or the meaning of why they said the way they did. But one thing that they don't say is, oh my goodness, you're the fulfillment of Isaiah 53? (laughs) Jesus says to them at the end of 38, it is enough. 
And uh, there's some controversy over the tone of how he says that, but we'll cover that in a minute. So what's going on here? What's, uh, what's this mean? So since Jesus is initiating all of this with his disciples, let's follow his train of thought here. Um, like I said, he brings up this old mission that he had sent them on in Luke 10. So if you do have your Bibles, flip back over to actually Luke 9, verse 51, to give you some context here. This is, this is, Luke 9, 51 is a, is a crucial hinge point in the book of Luke. And it says this. Uh, let's see, I have to decide what version I'm going to read here. How about ESV? ESV, when the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. I also have my Bible here, which is NIV. It says that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And so from this point on, he is going to the cross. Everything that he does is lining up with his mission to end up on the cross, to pay the sin for mankind. And as he's going there to Jerusalem, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place he himself was about to go. So on his way to Jerusalem, he's going to all these towns. And if you look at verse 4 of chapter 10, Jesus says, Carry no money bag, knapsack, sandals, and greet no one on the road. So he gives them instructions on how they are to do this mission. They are to be dependent on other people and on the Lord as they proclaim about Jesus to these towns. When they get back in chapter 10, verse 17, they rejoice that even demons submitted to them and how much power God worked through them. And in verse 19, Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So they were completely taken care of by him. Now, if we go back to, to Luke 22, when Jesus is referencing this story, he asks them, what did they lack? And of course, they say, they, they say nothing. He took care of them. But now he has a new mission in mind in verse 36. We're back in Luke 22 now. Verse 36, he says, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and a knapsack. And then he says to bring a sword um, on this new mission. That's odd enough, isn't it? What I find interesting is after verse 36, it's not what I expect. What you would expect is similar to the old mission where Jesus says, do these things, gives them the instructions, and then there's a so that, so that you can go to these towns, so that you can tell these people about the good news of the kingdom of God and that kind of instruction. But here you don't see that in this mission. Instead, you see a reason why the swords and the money bag should be taken. In verse 37, Jesus says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. So his purpose here in this mission, this, this equipping that he's, he's giving them, and, and the change of focus is, is primarily about his mission, not necessarily primarily about the things that they are to do. I mean, it's clear that there is a radical change about to take place. I think that is, that is clear here, reading the story. But 
maybe there's a question in your mind and, and, and in mine as well, but what does the swords have to do with this? You know, why is Jesus asking his disciples and followers to buy and acquire weapons? Maybe you've asked that question. There's some, certainly some debate over this out there. And there's all kinds of opinions that people have on it. But what I want you to focus in on is the main point, and that is very clear, that what Jesus says right here is the purpose is so that the Scripture might be fulfilled in him. And he quotes Isaiah 53. It is easy to miss the point here with the sword thing, but the point is clear. Jesus even says it two times that the scriptures are going to be fulfilled in him. Now, does Isaiah 53 talk about swords? We're going to be looking at Isaiah 53 in more depth in a a, a little bit as we go through our series. Um, But I do want to touch on it briefly. If you want to look at Isaiah 53, verse 12, that is what Jesus quotes, the particular quote that he says. I'll read it for you if you just want to listen. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is at the end of a long section where the author Isaiah is writing about a one who comes from majesty, is yet treated like a rebel and one who had done wrong for the purpose of rescuing those who actually did the wrong. He bears their burden, their sin on their behalf. That's what this is talking about. This 700-year-old prophecy fits one person only. And Jesus is very clear that this is the moment in history where this will find its fulfillment. If you're familiar with the translation, uh, one thing I want to point out is um, a lot of translations use the word transgressor. I might use transgressor or rebel or outlaw. Those are all interchangeable. The idea is that one who has uh, been a rebel, been rebellious, turned away, deserving of judgment. And all of those are fine in the translation. Jesus says, again, this is all written about him. And the swords come into play in Jesus' mind where he is going to be counted as a rebel. People are going to see him this way and treat him this way. Though it is very clear, he is not that way. He is none of those things. Finally, here in this section, why the two swords? Why is it enough? Why not a hundred swords or one sword or half a sword? We don't really know. But Jesus says it is enough in verse 38. And and we'll see as the story goes on here, these two two swords are going to come back into play at the end of the story. Um, And there's debate over, like I said, the tone of what Jesus says, it is enough. You know, he could mean... Something along the lines of, okay, we got two swords, that's good enough. That fulfills the prophecy. Two swords is enough. Or he could say it in a sense of exasperation, like, ah, enough! Like, you guys are missing the point. That's another possible view on what he is saying here. But really, it doesn't matter 
in the end because the main point, again, is that Jesus is the one who will fulfill the scripture of becoming a transgressor, a rebel on their behalf. And when he does that and fulfills this mission, that provision will be enough. It will be all that they need, and they will not lack anything, truly. One of the uh, things that I find humbling and amazing about Jesus as I've studied this passage is the initiative that Jesus takes. And my hope for you as you read this and, and ponder this message is that you see how incredibly large, big, I don't know how many adjectives I could say, God's love is for you in this. He was the one that started this rescue plan for sinners and ensured that when he came into the world, this plan would see its way through to the very end and he would accomplish God's will. He did not cut corners. He ensured complete provision for his disciples on their mission and on his mission to provide for sin complete provision. Through each word and detail here, his love looms large. And as I consider this passage and how Jesus works through it all, my heart overflows with joy because he did this for me. He did this for you. And if you're like me, your heart is prone to distraction in life and and treating this simply as a historical event that has implications for Sunday morning. But is it the air that you breathe? Is it the lifeblood, this message? Consider the things in your daily life, the worries, the joys, the pains, the sufferings, all the questions you have. And consider the intimacy of Jesus and the plan that he had put into place to care for you. Keep that in the back of your mind as we keep going. So Jesus brings up this new mission to his disciples. And the scene changes here in verse 39. And let's work our way to point number two. The agony in obedience. Jesus, here in verse 39, takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives. It says, as was their custom. They go to pray, to their their place of prayer. Uh, This is no ordinary night. Like I said, this is the night of Passover celebration. Jesus said incredible things to them. And they are all remembering God's rescuing out of slavery. That's the context. Jesus tells his disciples to pray in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he goes and prays. And at the end in verse 46, he says the exact same thing to them. Pray that you will not enter temptation. Two times he says that. And in the middle here, Jesus is recorded as kneeling down and praying. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 44, it says that he's in agony as he prays and considers what is to happen to him. And again, when he comes back to the disciples, he finds them sleeping in verse 45 and not doing what he had said to pray that they would not fall into temptation. There's a few things I want to highlight here as we consider Jesus. The first thing is that he is truly obedient. 
He asks when he prays in verse 42 that the cup be removed. This is, this is a, a symbolic thing that, uh, as you read the Old Testament, symbolizes God's wrath and his judgment against sin that is to be given to Jesus. But he says, if you're willing, remove the cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the one who has all authority and power. The one who came from heaven into this world and the one who's making sure that history travels along the path that prophecy is fulfilled so that he ends up on the cross as a criminal. Even though he perfectly obeys. In the face of temptation, Jesus asks if there is another way, but he submits to the Father's will. You see, he is identifying as a rebel, but in no way, shape, or form is he fulfilling that role as a true rebel. He is 100% not a rebel, obeying perfectly the Father's will. And his obedience is costly. He is in agony. It costs him everything. And any judgment on him, an association of him with any kind of rebellious deed, thought, action, person, whatever, is the definition of injustice. Yet his plan goes through. He is counted as a rebel. Isaiah 53 is fulfilled. Now, by contrast here, you have the disciples. Jesus tells them to pray. Pray that they may not enter temptation. And how are they tempted? Well, consider this. Judas was tempted and turned on Jesus. He betrayed him. And at this very moment, as Jesus is asking them to pray, Judas is on his way with a a crowd with weapons to arrest Jesus. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. They are tempted to fall away and abandon Jesus, abandon him in his completed mission, abandon him for his salvation that he offers. Um, Like I said, one of the reasons why I like to use the word rebel rather than simply transgressor, they're both fine, is that I think, I know for me, the sense of rebel has a deeper meaning. Like you might think of yourself as a sinner or a transgressor, but do you think of yourself as a rebel, as an outlaw, as a, as a, a traitorous individual against God and his plan? Someone who rejects God's authority because they want to go their own way. We are the rebels, you and I. You know, rebels are not known for their goodness or their obedience. They are marked by their rebellion. This past uh, couple of weeks, I heard a message where the, the speaker was asking questions along the lines of, is your will submitted to God's will? 
Do you seek His input on your decisions in your life? Is honoring and glorifying Him the center of your life? And those are very hard-hitting questions as it exposes what's in my own heart, that rebellious nature to live my own life and not submit to Jesus's. And when temptation comes, unless that is fought against, it is easy to follow my own heart or your own heart and abandon Jesus. Do you see his love for you this morning, that he will pursue you even as you do that? He did not fall to temptation. He perfectly obeyed. Verse 50, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 53 was fulfilled so he can win freedom for the rebels. Jesus in agony obeys, faces extreme temptation, but does not give in. This is your Savior. This is the Jesus who loves you. And this is why he came to earth in the first place. Let's consider Moving on here to our third section, swords for a prophecy. This is where Jesus is arrested. So he's still speaking to the crowd in verse 47. And they arrive. Notice in verse 48 the incredible, that is incredible, incredible restraint by Jesus as Judas goes up to give him a kiss. And Jesus asks him a question. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He has, remember, he has all authority and power. And this is a traitor. Verse 49, this is where the swords come back into play. So remember, they have two swords. Somebody, one of them says, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And verse 50, the other guy with the sword whom we know, if you read the Gospel of John, this is Peter. It doesn't say it here. He doesn't wait for an answer. So one guy's like, got the sword. What should we do? The other guy, Peter, just starts swinging. <clears throat> Jesus clearly didn't want the swords to be used in this way. Verse 51, he says, no more of this. And again, he, uh, he heals those who came to harm him, this guy whose ear was cut off. Amazing. So Jesus asks this question in verse 52, which is very, very uh, important. He asks all these guys who came out to arrest him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And this question highlights how he is viewed and treated. Um, this, this word here, robber, can also be that, that same sense of, of rebel or outlaw or, or revolutionary, even. Jesus acknowledges that this is your hour, the power of darkness. This is the hour, this is the time that he has arranged, that he is allowing to happen to him at the end of verse 53. And then we didn't read it, but the next verse says that he is bound and taken away in his arrest. If you're familiar with this story, you, you uh, probably have heard uh, and think about this whole thing with the swords and the cutting off of the ear and whatnot. It, it kind of 
uh, is a memorable moment of this story. Uh, and again, Jesus is clear that these, he didn't intend uh, for these swords to be used in this manner, uh, but yet they have a, a great significance. And I think it, it mostly comes up and is highlighted by this question that Jesus asks, have you come out as against a robber or an outlaw? Remember, it was him who made that connection back a few verses ago with Isaiah 53, that he was going to be numbered, he was going to be counted as a transgressor, as a rebel. And here, these swords play an important part of that association of Jesus being identified as such. And though he, he did not need these things to see that his arrest was followed through, they do make the point uh, and, that, and that clear association with him being rebellious and being associated with the rebellious and unbelieving and simple world. It was him who came from majesty to suffer for sins in order for sins of people to save them. It was him who was indeed numbered with the rebels, even down to the very last detail. Now, what else may these swords mean? Jesus had uh, obviously fill, fulfilled Isaiah 53 and he was numbered with the rebels. But why were the disciples told to acquire these weapons? And what does that mean? Well, one thing that it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they are now being numbered with the rebels. Because they were already rebels to begin with. It was only Jesus who was then not a rebel, counted as one. But what this means for them is that as they follow Jesus in his mission for the provision of sin, as he is, is sacrificed for their behalf. It means that they, as they throw their lot in with him, they are numbered with Jesus. They are associated with him now. They have crossed over from the rebel camp to the kingdom of God. Jesus wants them to realize this. And Jesus is counted, just as he is accounted as a rebel, the disciples may suffer the same fate as men treated him. And for us, as we consider application of this passage, we have to think, if you have put your lot in with Jesus, if you have submitted your heart to him, if he has your allegiance and you have his life and forgiveness of sin, that you are numbered with Jesus. And the world that hates Jesus might hate you too. That rub that is there between the world, the kingdom of the world and kingdom of God might rub on you and your life. And the temptation to abandon Jesus is very real. And you can abandon Jesus for all kinds of reasons, for self-preservation, for pride, fear or pleasure, etc., Going back to the application that Jesus had said to his disciples when he was praying, pray that you will not fall into temptation. This past week, um, I felt like I had a good illustration of this as I was sitting at my computer and something came across the computer screen that was very tempting. And, you know, thankfully, studying this passage and thinking, man, I need to pray. 
temptation is staring me right in the face, and it is hard to obey. It's easy to abandon Jesus for a light and momentary moment, if you will. Jesus, help me to persevere. Help me to pray. Help me not to abandon you in this moment. Pray for help. Does your life with Jesus drive you to prayer? Do you see this love and does it drive you to prayer? Have you identified the areas or area maybe looming large in your mind where you're tempted to stray from Jesus? If you follow him, you are numbered with him. My hope, again, this morning is that this message, you will see Jesus' love more clearly and not fall into temptation. If you have not already done so, I would encourage you, consider, you are a rebel. There is a way to be forgiven. And that is only by Jesus. So leave that camp of the rebellious and join the camp of Jesus and his new life. This Christmas, I want you to remember this story. I want you to to remember the detail that Jesus goes through on the follow-through. See, We can tend to think that Christmas is about babies and Christmas trees and and all these things. And and yeah, they, they help us remind us of Jesus. But where it all goes in the end is right here. It all ends up in the cross. See, the ultimate purpose of this innocent baby coming was to lead an innocent life. A perfect life in obedience to the Father among traitorous, prideful, selfish people and live 33 years of that life and arrange all of these events such that on this very night that we just read about, celebrating Passover, Jesus is the one who sends out the traitor. He could have stopped him. Jesus is the one who tells the disciples to bring swords. Jesus is the one who leads them to the very exact spot that he knew that Judas would lead the crowd to arrest him. Jesus is the one who, when Judas shows up, does not harm him. Jesus is the one who arranges things so that he gets framed and arrested at just the right hour. Jesus is the one who gets blamed and tortured and eventually killed for their sin, our sin, not his sin. Do you see God's love for you in this story? Every detail lines up just according to his plan. And as Jesus cares this much, Consider he cares that much about you and every detail of your life too. We're going to take a few moments here. I would love for us to do this together. Just bow your heads and, and to meditate on this love of God for you in Christ. Confess sin if you need to. Rejoice in Jesus.
take a few moments here. Just bow your heads and hold him and his love in your gaze just for, for the next few minutes. It's going to be quiet. There may be some incidental noise here and there, but just pray to the Lord and I will, uh, I'll pray to close us. Jesus, we honor you and praise you today, this morning. Our hearts are overflowed with joy as we consider what you have done, the great love displayed on our behalf. You associated with us in every way, yet without sin. God, I pray that you would help us to see you more clearly to see Jesus' work more dearly in every moment of every day of our lives. Help us this Christmas season, even, to remember that you identify with the rebels, that you came for this very purpose. Jesus, give us a new perspective on your love. We pray this all in your name. Amen.